past few days as you have um, been at work in Gene Keyser's life and in the doctors that have been with him and working on him. Father, we thank you for the success of the procedures that were done. Father, we're thankful that, Lord, all of this was caught before it would have been more serious than it was. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with him and, and uh, his family, his extended family, that, Father, you would give them comfort and assurance. Father, most of all, we pray this would be an opportunity for the gospel. It would be an opportunity for people to think about their own mortalities or perhaps the loss of a loved one and to be thinking about the provision you have made in Christ. Father, we pray that for us as well that you would help us to be mindful of Christ even now as we look to what he has done for us on the cross. Father, we pray that you would be with us, that you would empower us to hear well your word, and that, Father, where it is needed, you would bring both conviction and encouragement to our hearts. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 5. Before he became famous for his revolution of nonviolence that shaped modern India, Gandhi was a young lawyer working in South Africa. Encountering Christians there, he became very interested in the Christian faith and what Christians believed. And so he began to read a Bible and began to uh, ask them questions about what, what is Christianity all about? Why do, you, why do you follow this man Christ? And he loved the morality that he saw in the Christian faith, but ultimately he stumbled over the cross. And in his autobiography, he would write this. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on a cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. For him, the cross didn't bring about anything mysterious or miraculous. It simply set a good example for humanity to follow. That's the, the world's assessment of the cross. A good example to be found in Christ. But unfortunately, sometimes even those who profess to be Christians have that same kind of deficient view of the cross. It was surprising to me to find that Charles Finney, a man sometimes hailed as a great evangelist, for a previous generation held to that very view of the cross. He believed that no atonement was made, no satisfaction was provided for. It was simply an example of, of good morality and a, and a falling obedience to Christ. And that, that that great example that Christ gave on the cross should encourage others to die to themselves and turn to faith in God. Likewise, even today, there are some in our own time who would have that view and other views of the cross that would drain its very life and power for all those that would look to it in faith. But the Bible says again and again the cross is so much more than a moral example. And last week we looked at the very heart of what the cross of Christ means. We looked at the heart of the salvation we receive from God by looking to Christ's death as a propitiation for our sins. And we said that that word propitiation means that on the cross, Christ fully satisfied God's wrath against 
our sin. This morning we move from that language of propitiation and, and temple sacrifice into the marketplace and into the language of redemption. We want to continue to look at the cross this morning and see what does it mean for the Bible to say that, that in the cross God redeemed a people for himself. In the book that we're going to look at this morning, the very last book of the Bible, we see all of heaven gives praise to Christ. They say he is counted worthy of honor and glory, not just because he is God in the flesh, but specifically because he has secured redemption for sinners. <coughs> in a song of praise to the lion-like lamb that is Christ, we want to focus our attention this morning. Before that, though, we want to, to get a sweep of what has led John to this place. You see, uh, particularly if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the book of Revelation is not just something you kind of drop into and start reading. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so the question is, what has gone on before? What are the events surrounding the, the, the writing of this book that would lead us to where we're going to look in just a minute in chapter 5? We have to understand that when this book was first penned, John, the, 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 the one who has authored the book, was in fact the very last of the apostles uh, in old age living in exile on a mining island of Patmos in the Roman Empire. He is now near the very end of his life and God in his great mercy and grace has given him this glorious vision of the risen Christ. A vision that has compared to, to no one else in all the history of the church. In fact, that is what this book is inherently. It's called the revelation. It means the unveiling of the risen Christ. Every chapter, every verse tells us something about who Jesus is and reveals his glory to us. But you have to understand John was not given the, the, this book to write as a book. You know, Paul, the way the rest of, uh, much of the rest of the New Testament was written, Paul would say, I want to write a church to uh, the church at Galatia or the church at Ephesus or the church at Corinth. And he would say, I want to write to them about this thing and this thing and this thing. I want to encourage them with these words. And it was flowing up out of his heart that that is what he wanted to write. And in fact, God so supernaturally worked in Paul as he was writing that letter, perhaps even giving him the very burden to write, that what Paul penned was not only what he wanted to say, but it was exactly the very words that God wanted him to say to those churches and to us today. Because the book of John, the book of Revelation rather, didn't really come exactly like that. It was given very much as the Old Testament prophets were able to see as a vision given to John himself. The book begins with him saying that he was in fact in worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday when he saw the risen Christ himself as all glorious. And he says with frank honesty he fell on his face as if he was dead. And you know... We all have heard the song, you know, I can only imagine on the radio. And we, you know, the, the, the chorus says, you know, will we, will we cry, will we dance, will we sing, will we do these things? I understand the point of the song, but I can't help but think that what, what happens with John is exactly what's going to happen with us when we, when we stand in glory in front of Christ. Nevertheless, Christ reaches down and, and gives John the ability to stand in his presence and he commands him to, to record everything that he's about to see and to hear and to give it to the churches. And the first... And the first thing that he sees are, and hears are these letters that Christ gives to, to his church. In chapters 2 and 3, these are, these are words of both rebuke and encouragement to churches that, that, that actually existed historically in the first century. And nevertheless, those churches stand as a pattern for the church for all time as well. 
And then in chapter 4, everything changes as God has given not just a vision of the risen Christ, but a vision of heaven itself, of the heavenly throne room. And there he sees the great majesty and power and sovereignty of God displayed. So glorious is what he sees that words fail him. And he begins to describe the glory of God like jewels and precious stones. And he beholds the heavenly worship of the eternal God. But then in chapter 5, John sees, he says, in the right hand of God a scroll. The scroll representing <coughs> the complete plan of God for all of creation and redemption. All that God has decreed he will accomplish is wrapped up in this scroll. And all that is left to be done is for the seals to be broken on the scroll, for it to be opened up symbolically, and the entirety of God's plan for redemption will be brought about. And he, John says he sees a mighty, and a mighty angel that says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You have to understand, John has been given this vision of heaven. He's seen all these mighty angels, all these powerful beings of the heavenly host, and he's looking around eagerly. Surely one of these people can go and, and break the scroll and fulfill God's will. But John says that was not the case. He says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is devastated. Nevertheless, an angel, an angelic elder says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and so he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And John says he turns around expecting to see a lion, and instead he sees a lamb standing as if slain. I mean, it was dead? No, not at all, because the elder said, this is the Lion of Judah who has conquered. It is the risen Christ who, though been, has been slain, has conquered over death and now stands alive again, victorious, and yet still bears the marks of his crucifixion for his people. And it is this, this Lion of Judah, this, this Lamb of God who was offered for sins that goes up and takes the scroll and begins to break its seals and bring about the will of God. And as he does that, John says, all of heaven explodes into worship. And he says in chapter 5, verse 9, our passage for this morning, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. and By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. From this song, we want to see the nature and the consequences of the redemption that Christ won for his people. And in doing so, we need to see and understand three things. First, we need to see the sacrifice in which we believe. The sacrifice in which we believe. This new song of praise to the Lamb begins with the words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. What Christ has done that brings about the worship of heaven is ultimately rooted in one thing, the fact that he was slain. And he wasn't just slain in any way for any reason. Specifically, the New Testament tells us, and in fact tells us many times, that Jesus Christ was slain on a Roman cross. And the reality is that all of Christianity centers around that cross. All of Christianity either rises or falls on the centrality of the cross to its message and its life. And frankly, that's surprising. It may not be surprising for us today because crosses are everywhere, aren't they? 
There's one behind me. There's one uh, up on the roof. There's one on our letterhead. Some of us wear uh, gold-covered crosses on our lapels or they, they dangle from our necks. The cross, by cultural standards, has almost become meaningless today. Well, what does it mean? It's, it's nothing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an icon. It's a piece of jewelry. It's just something that's floating out there. But you have to understand, for, for Jesus' day, for those Christians under the Roman Empire, the cross meant one thing and one thing only. Death. Death. And not just any death. Not just like, oh, we're sad, someone got sick and, 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 and passed away. No, no, not that kind of death. It was, it was a gruesome death. It was a violent death. It was a, a bloody death humiliating death as you were nailed to a wood crossbeam and hung naked for all to see. It was only reserved for those that were criminals in Roman society. And so with that in mind, you can understand why it is surprising that the Christians, even from the earliest times, pointed to the cross as the focus of their faith. It would be like us today going up to somebody and saying, you know, I want to tell you about this person who's made a difference in my life. Oh, really? What kind of person is he? Well, he's an amazing person. He's not just, he's not just any person. He's actually God who, who came to this earth and took on flesh. And, and he died in the electric chair for your sins. Or he died in the, in the gas chamber for your sins. And I say, what are you talking about? The guy was a criminal? I, I, I don't want to hear about someone who, that, that you worship who died in an electric chair. That's, that's disgusting. That's offensive. I, just go away. And that's exactly the response very often that, that Christians in the first century got. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. And yet, for those who do believe, for those who were, who were able to trust in Christ, he says the cross was not something to be embarrassed about, but something to be cherished. Listen to the rest of what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, for those who have no faith in God. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so evangelist and theologian John Stott can say this, the fact that the cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused in spite of ridicule to discard it in favor of something less offensive can only have one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. Now if you're here and you've read the Gospels, you know that's true. That, that, that what has consumed Jesus and all that he did was the cross. Even from the earliest time of his birth, the shadow that falled over his short life was the shadow coming from the cross itself. We could read passage after passage of a passage, but one will suffice. Christ could sum up his whole mission on, worth, on this earth in these, with these words in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The same, the same Lamb, the same Son of God who has given all the praise of heaven. He says, I, I, I didn't come here to get that praise. I didn't come here to receive adulation. I did not come here for people to, to make monuments to me in this lifetime. No, I came for one purpose only. I came to die. I came to die for sinners. On May 21st, 1946, there was a young scientist named Louis Slotin 
who was working at the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico, carrying out an experiment in preparation for the upcoming test of the atomic bomb. And the experiment he was conducting was one that he had, he had conducted numerous times before successfully. The experiment was to determine the amount of uranium-235 necessary to bring about the chain reaction in the bomb. He would take much smaller quantities of what would actually be used later in the bomb to smaller quantities of, of uranium shaped as tiny globes. And he, they would begin to, to push these things together on a machine. And the closer they got together, the more they would react against one another. And the closer they would come to reaching critical mass. The point at which the reaction was, was so violent and so intense that the explosion would take place. And, I mean, you know, this is, you know, 1946. But it's still amazing. The thing that would stop that reaction from happening in the lab was Sloten taking an average screwdriver and sticking it in between and wedging them back apart and moving away from each other. And he did this over and over again to ensure the bomb would work. But one day, that fateful day in May, just as the material was about to touch and the reaction was becoming critical, Slotin stuck out his screwdriver as he always had and then dropped it onto the floor. And though previously the uranium would have been stopped at this point, they begin to get closer and closer together. And witnesses say that the entire room in the laboratory began to be filmed with a bluish-white haze of intensity as the radiation, the reaction that was taking place grew in intensity. And the explosion would not have been such that would have leveled the place. And Slaughton could have very easily threw himself behind the rail, and, and perhaps even saved his life, but instead he reached out with his bare hands and grabbed the uranium balls and began to push them away from one another, thus preventing the reaction from taking place and from that room and seven other people from being destroyed. As he was waiting for the ambulance to arrive and take him to the hospital, his lab assistant, a younger man, was looking over at, at Slotin's hands that were already giving signs of radiation burn, and Slotin knew what he was thinking. How much radiation is in his hands? Am, am I myself in, in danger of dying because of his brave act and being here with him? And Slaughton looked at him and said, quote, You'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. And he was right. Nine days later, in agony, body riddled with radiation, Slaughton died that day, having given himself for the seven other workers in the Los Alamos facility. And in a way so far infinitely greater, almost beyond imagination. When Christ hung on the cross, he hung in between God and sinners. And the blinding, righteous, furious intensity of a holy God's wrath directed at sin fell upon Christ on the cross instead of the sinners who deserved it. This is why the worship of heaven centers around the Lamb, not just the Lamb who is God the Son, but the Lamb who was slain. The focus is on the cross. And if it's that way in heaven, how much more should it be now for our lives on this earth? Not just in the gathered worship of the church, but in all that we do, in our teaching, in our mission and vision, in our strategies, and in our prayers, the centrality of the cross of Christ should be evident beyond any doubt. Furthermore, this is why the cross is so central to our faith. We do not put our faith in a mere man. We do not put our faith in one who only gave us an example. We do not put our faith in a man who died as a, as a righteous martyr. No, we put our faith in the God who became flesh and ransomed sinners by his death. 
It was on the cross that redemption was won for sinners. But what does redemption mean? This brings us to the second thing they want to see this morning. The sin from, wh from which we are free. The sin from which we are free. Again, last week we saw that the death of Christ on the cross fully satisfied God's wrath against His people's sins. And here we see it was not just a sacrifice of propitiation, it was also a sacrifice of redemption. The heavenly hosts sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What does it mean that Christ ransomed people for God? Well, like the word redemption, the word ransom is intimately connected to it, and it involves the marketplace um, during these times. In fact, very specifically, the, the place of the slave market. See, during New Testament times, almost beyond belief now, but there were something like 20 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And that was low. At that point, six, no less than 60% of the Roman Empire was made up not of Roman citizens, but of slaves. And so the idea, this language of Christ ransoming people would have been immediately obvious to them. They would have, it would have made a, a distinct um, impression on their minds about what it meant for, for Christ to go and to be their ransom, to be their redemption. You see, first of all, we have to understand that the slavery back then was, was not like the slavery we had in our own country. Very often, you know, no one just, just went to a country and, and grabbed people and brought them back as slaves. No, they were already someone else's slaves that were very often won as spoils of war. You defeated somebody's enemy, so you got their slaves. Furthermore, there are people that for, for various reasons could not find occupation elsewhere, so they would literally sell themselves into slavery. And if you wanted to, to free someone, if you wanted to redeem them from slavery and allow them to be a freed man again, you would have to pay a ransom. In other words, if I had a brother who was, who was enslaved and I wanted to see him set free, I would go to the slaveholder and I would actually purchase the brother for myself. I would pay the ransom that was required and then I would be able to free him and allow him to go and to live his life. But this idea of redemption and ransom is not just something that was going around in the first century. As Christians who would have read the book of Revelation, they would have known about the Old Testament and they would have been familiar with it. They would have known the imagery and what they would have seen, what they would have understood was that the very first act of redemption came not in the marketplaces of the New Testament, but back in the Old Testament when God first redeemed a people for himself out of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt called Israel. You may remember the story that from providential circumstances, the, the, the people that God said he would bless found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And not the kind of slaves they had in the first century either, but, but slaves that were, were mistreated and were made to, to work hard and were despised by the Egyptians. And God comes and he redeems them by telling them, I'm going to bring judgment on all of Egypt. And if you will offer a sacrifice, if you will offer up a lamb and in faith believing that I will redeem you, sprinkle its blood across your doorpost, then you will be saved from the judgment that is about to fall upon them, upon all of Egypt. And as a result of that salvation that was won, that we call the Exodus, God instituted a yearly celebration called the Passover, where every year they would offer that sacrifice again, not for their redemption again, but as a memorial of the redemption that was secured for them during that first Passover offering. 
And when we get to the New Testament, we see in the same way, Christ is our Passover lamb. In fact, he is the very fulfillment of those first Passover lambs. And all the lambs that were ever offered throughout history, they were all pointing to the redemption that will be won in Christ. And rather than being freed from slavery to a mere person, Christ achieved redemption from sin itself. You see, the Bible says that all of us are born with sinful natures and therefore are enslaved to sin. It's not as if, it's not as if we, want to be, we, we want to be good and we just can't do it. We don't want to be good. I mean, we are sinners by our, by our very core. And unless, you know, unless there's a, a cop standing there you know, with his hand on the pistol, we're pretty much going to do anything that we can get away with. I mean, I mean, you know, I even see this with my kids. I tell you know, my kids, go clean your room up. And like, you can't just leave them for 30 minutes to clean their room and go off and try and do something else. Every five minutes, you've got to kind of step in there and check on them and say, how's it going? Are you, are you cleaning the room? Otherwise, what happens? You know, I mean, they start cleaning and they're, you know, they're obeying, but then they find this toy. Oh, I haven't seen that for ages. I didn't remember I had that. That's cool. Let's, you know, let's get over here and we'll get this one and start playing. And they disobey. And you've got, you've got to be a constant reminder to them and, and, and saying, a constant, a, a constant holding them back from the sin that would just easily overtake them. And it's not just with kids, it's with everyone in society. Why do you think God has instituted government? Why do you think God has instituted laws and peacekeepers? Because given, given no, no holds, we would just consume ourselves in sin because we are enslaved to it. It is our master. We are in bondage to us. But the Bible says Christ came to redeem us from sin. That he frees us from sin because through his death, he paid the price of our ransom. By his death on the cross, Christ freed us from sin. And he did this in two ways. First, he freed us from the guilt of sin. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse of the law is the death sentence that we receive for failing to keep God's moral law. We have sinned and therefore the judgment that we deserve is death. Yet through his own public execution, Christ on the cross became accursed in our place. He stood at the gap and the judgment that we deserve fell on him. Therefore the Bible says God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is, from our enslavement to sin, he has delivered us from that and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is redemption? In part, it's forgiveness of sins. Christ died so that the judgment would not come upon us. The ransom was paid. But more than that, Christ's ransom also secured our freedom from the power of sin. You know, it would be one thing if he said, God said, fine, your sins are forgiven, but you're still enslaved to it. I mean, how bad would that be? I mean, we already feel bad as Christians when we sin, but if we had no choice, we were still captive to sin. And so we just went around crazy the same way with no, no apparent change in our life. God just let us off the hook. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He frees us from the grip of sin in our lives. So not only are we not accountable for the sin, but now he has made it possible that we can say no to sin and that we can pursue a life of righteousness. In Titus 2, the Apostle Paul says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
If you have placed faith in Christ, you have been redeemed out of a life of sin. That means you're no longer held, like, held by, uh, under God's judgment for it, but more than that, you have been freed from your slavery to sin. So that now, according to the, the glory of God that we desire, we can pursue a righteousness and a holiness with our lives that we were unable to do before. And it's for this very reason that all of heaven gives glory to the Lamb. This is why he is worthy to stand as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords because he was slain, they say, and ransomed people for God by his blood. Folks, if the angels in heaven who have no need of redemption, they have no sinful natures, there's no concept of salvation in their lives, if they can give all of their worship and glory and praise to the Son for redeeming sinners, then how much more should we who have experienced redemption who have experienced the grace of, of being freed from bondage of sins, also likewise give ourselves over to the worship of Christ with our lives. And the Bible says that worship is not just about singing. It's not just about what we do during this hour. Every act of life done for the glory of God is worship. And so more often than not, worship is pictured and called service to God. And this brings us to our last point this morning. We need to see the service for which we are called. The service for which we are called. Again, John says, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It is not without purpose that God redeems sinners. We may think it's great and that it's just good enough to be freed from sin in our lives, but God says there is more. Remember the analogy with the slave. The person who seeks to free the slave does what? Receives first ownership, doesn't he? And so Paul can write to the Corinthians and he will say this. You are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. So what does that mean, Paul? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Do you see the logic there? We were once enslaved to sin. It was our master. We, we sinned and we loved sin. Paul says, all that's over with. You've been redeemed out of bondage to sin. You've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, you belong to God. And the most logical response is to glorify God with your lives. Inherent in the call of God to repent and believe in His Son for redemption is also a call to service. He has redeemed us by the blood of His Son, and therefore we belong to Him. But notice, notice how we are to serve God. The angels of heaven sing, they will be a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now I, I hope, I hope that if you know anything about the Bible, that just, that just rang a big bell in your head. Because it, it's, a, it's an amazing statement about what God has done in the past and what he has done now through Christ. Again, remember that these are, these are first and second generation Christians that are getting this. Largely, probably Jewish believers, and they are steeped in the Old Testament. And, and just as a side note, almost all of the imagery in this book of Revelation is drawn from the Old Testament. Okay, So, you know, I think I've said before, if you're reading Revelation, you're hearing somebody, just, you know, interpret it or you're thinking through it as well. And if a first century Jewish Christian cannot have come up with the interpretation you've come up with, then frankly you're wrong. Okay, and that's okay. It just means we have to rethink it, right? But think about, think about what they're hearing. Think about what they're hearing, what they're thinking when they receive this letter from John. 
We've already said the whole idea of God ransoming the people, bringing redemption to them was rooted in the Exodus. Remember, that was a defining moment for the people of God. It was a defining moment for Israel. Their entire life was based in that moment of Exodus. You say, well, how do you get that? Just look at the Ten Commandments. You know, we, we quote one through ten, but we missed the first part, the most important part, the prologue. What does God say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Make no graven image. Do not take my name in vain. Keep my day the Sabbath. Do you see the logic there? I've redeemed you. You are my people. I am your God. Therefore, I'm giving you my law to keep. All of the blessings and obligations given to Israel through the law had its basis in this one event, Israel's redemption from Egypt. So, do you see what's happening in Revelation yet? Are, are you beginning to, to realize what God is saying? If we back up to Exodus 19, right before the people receive the law, they, they approach Mount Sinai and God reveals himself in peals of thunder and lightning and smoke. And he says to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Do you see what, you see what God has done now? He has gone through the redemption in Christ. While Israel, he said he has taken them, one people, out of all the nations. And he has brought them to himself. He has redeemed them. He has chosen them to be his people and he would be their God. But now in Christ, what has he done? He says, I'm not going to ransom one people group out of the nations. Instead, I will take some, many, from every people group among the nations and bring them together in my grace and make them one new people for my name. And I won't just ransom them from slavery to some man. I will ransom them from sin, not with the blood of animals, with the blood of my own son. This is the glorious redemption that we have in Christ. And so, like the, like the angels in heaven, we should say, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How glorious. But you know, part of the reason why God did that was because Israel failed in the Old Covenant. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means through them the glory of God was to be mediated. The nations were to look at Israel and figure out who God is and want to worship him, want to serve him, want to be his people. And they failed. They botched it. And now all the more, instead of one country going for the globe, now God says, I am pulling people from every corner of the globe, from every country, from every people, from every tongue. And collectively now, they will be my light to the rest of the nations. They will be my light to sinners, proclaiming the glory of Christ. But Peter was a Jew, and he knew the Old Testament, and he knew the failings of the past. And so when he wrote to the early Christians, he said, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the mistakes of your forefathers when they blew it and they rebelled against God. And here's what he says. He says to the early Christians, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me just stop there and say, he's saying, put your, continue to trust in the gospel. 
continue to trust in God's grace. As Christians, sometimes we say, oh, I'm saved by grace, and now I get holy by works. And Peter says, no, 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 no. This doesn't work that way. You continue to become holy. You continue to live the Christian life by faith, by trusting in what Christ, God did for you in Christ. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Conduct yourselves knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says, remember, you're not like Israel. Things are so much different now. Yes, the pattern of his ransom and redemption was echoing what he would do in Christ, but now, now there is a greater call in our lives to be the people of God. One of my heroes from church history is Charles Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. And when he preached on this passage back in 1875, he said this, The man that does not feel himself to be specially redeemed from among men will see no reason for being different from other men. This morning, I pray, if you are here as a Christian, you will come to understand you are especially redeemed from among men. Elsewhere, he says this, The most potent plea for sanctity, that is for holiness, is not you were made or you are nourished, but you are bought this the apostle selects as a convincing proof of our duty and as a means to make that duty our delight and truly beloved it is so if we have indeed experienced the power of redemption we fully admit that it is so look you back to the day when you were bought when you were bond slaves to your sin when you were under the just sentence of divine justice when it was inevitable that god should punish your transgressions Remember how the Son of God became your substitute. How He bared His back to the lash that should have fallen upon you and laid His soul beneath the sword which should have quenched its fury in your blood. You were redeemed then. Redeemed from the punishment that was due you. Redeemed from the wrath of God. Redeemed unto Christ to be His forever. As those of you here this morning redeemed by the blood of Christ, let us cherish and worship our Savior. But more than that, let us remember our high calling in Christ. From this day forward until He returns to unite with all those that He has redeemed all over the world to be a light to the nations, that they will be able to behold the glory of God in Christ and so they themselves experience the redemption He has won on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, this morning we want to exalt your name and proclaim that you are indeed worthy. Not just of the worship of heaven, not just the worship of our lives, but of the absolute sovereign authority you have been given by your heavenly Father. And Lord, we know that one day every knee will bow and confess you as Lord, but Father, why should we wait for that day? Father, I pray that now by your Spirit moving in our hearts that you will Allow us to see the great sacrifice that was offered, the great price that was paid for our redemption, and even now bow our knees before you in worship, declaring you to be Lord. And that, Father, that would be so evident with our lives that we would draw people 
to you and faith in you and what you have done. That, Father, we would make the cross central in all that we do and so draw all men to you. Father, we pray this morning that if there are those that are here that have not placed their faith in your Son, Christ, for salvation, that you would draw them. But, Father, as they have heard the good news un unfolded this morning, we pray, God, that you would use that to draw them to yourself. That, Father, you would give them life that they may have faith in the only one who can save them, your Son, Christ. Father, we pray all these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.